You are listening to College Success Habits with Jesse Mogul, episode 167. Let's get to the show. Oh, this show's the best. The best show. Best show. Best show ever. Welcome to the College Success Habits Podcast. Do you want to triumph through school and have a little fun along the way? Learn habits to help you attain better productivity and hacks to help you slide through classes at any age. Here's your host, college circuit speaker, Jesse Mogul. Welcome back to College Success Habits. I am your host, Jesse Mogul. And as always, it's an honor and a privilege to have you here today. I hope you had a wonderful new year, a wonderful Christmas holiday. I've already noticed the numbers on the show going back up to their normal standard, which tells me that college campuses are back open and that you're back in school, because that's when you tend to want to listen to the show. And this is why I want to get right into today's topic, drinking in college. Now, for some of those who might want to immediately turn this off and think, I don't have any issues with drinking, or I do have issues with drinking, but either way, I do not want to hear this dude getting up on his pulpit telling me how I should be drinking alcohol. I would say, stop for one moment if that's a thought you had and a feeling that was conjured inside of you with some level of anxiety or stress or just annoyance, whatever that might be, and this one, stop, because whether it's you or somebody you know, drinking in college is a huge thing. I would know. I stayed there for 12 years, specifically because the easiest place for an addict to hide is in school, and I changed my major a ton of times, and I did everything I possibly could to just stay in that world, and graduated with like almost 300 credit hours. It was ridiculous, but I did it. I enjoyed it. I loved college. I loved drinking. I liked the partying, and it was what I did, and I have tiptoed around this subject for far too long because I didn't want to be coming off as some one of these, you know, pulpit getting on my soapbox kind of guys with comes to this show, especially because so many of you could say, well, you want us to do as you say, but not as you did. And I did have a tremendous drinking issue. It started in my summer before my freshman year when my parents got divorced and I no longer had anyone paying attention to my behaviors, my actions. Um, I had a job, I had a car, and all of a sudden, uh, I had found a way to get booze in my local town, and I was throwing parties, and there was girls, and it was just a fun. It was a lot of fun, and um, I took that as finally being a way for me to get out of my shell, and everything that happened, happened, and so I don't want to just jump right into that whole story without giving some context here, that I turned six years sober on Friday. And for those of you listening to this show linearly, that would be January 13th of 2023. And the habits that I started laying down, even as a child, very much led to my future behaviors. Any therapist worth their weight in salt would have been able to see how I was behaving as a child and be able to say, this kid is going to be very prone to addiction if we don't monitor the behavior as he gets old enough to find those things. And sure enough, as soon as I was able to get my hands on it, I saw the benefits. I ignored the non-benefits and I just went straight into it. I mean, day one of college, it was like drinking was my job. You know, six double shots being chased by this pink lemonade made by Snapple. And, you know, it was off to the races to Blackoutville and my fraternity didn't know how to handle it. So they drew on my face and, you know, made fun of me and tried to kick me out during my pledging um, rather than saying, wow, this is somebody who really has some emotional stuff going on. Let's see if we can't help them. 
But again, when you're asking a bunch of 18 to 22-year-old dudes who they themselves don't have a very uh, strong grip on emotional intelligence to then flag someone down who has um, drinking issues and is showing a lack of emotional intelligence and knowing how to cope with what they're feeling, right? I mean, asking a bunch of 18 to 22-year-old dudes to be able to monitor another 18 to 22-year-old dude is asinine. Um, it's not a surprise to me that, you know, drinking in fraternities becomes such a thing when you have a lot of people, especially guys who get into an area with each other and say, you know what, let's all throw down. And, you know, then drinking becomes almost machismo. It's like, who, who's going to be able to drink the most? Who's going to be able to have the craziest story? All of these things go into it. And then you throw women into the mix and you have women with their own emotional intelligence things going on and their own needs and wants and desires to be fulfilled by alcohol. And then you mix the two together. And it's not a surprise to me that alcohol takes over so many lives in college when they don't have the watchful eye of the parents. The school is huge, so teachers have a lot more students. Being able to get red flagged like you would in high school isn't going to be as easy. Um, you can slip under the radar, you know, even if you just show up to class and sit in the back and you reek of booze, you know, the professor's got 300 students underneath them, a little too much going on. And by the time you get to the smaller classes, um, you're pretty, you know, pretty much expected to be able to handle your own stuff. Um, and if you're not going to go and talk to the school therapist and you're not going to try to reach out and get some help and in some way that, um, you know, stretches beyond what is just, okay, let me, let me clean this up a little bit. There is help on your campus. There is, there, there is emotional and there's mental, there, and there are therapists, there are, there are counselors, there are people who will help you if you're going through some things. And if you don't think that you have a drinking problem or a drug problem, I'm not sitting to sit here and try to tell you that you do. I'm just going to go over some of the things that I noticed about me and see if you can maybe draw a connection. If you're still here with me and you're listening to this, then something about this is entertaining to you. Something about this is interesting you. And so we're going to go into some of the stuff because as a child, I was very, I was very obsessive compulsive, not a doctor's diagnosis, just as much as mine. I was very particular about how I kept my room and very particular about how I organized things. I would play video games back before they kept stats and I would write down like how many yards each one of the football players ran for, for each play. Like I was, I just I needed to take some kind of control over what I believed and felt was a very chaotic home life. My mom got Crohn's disease at eight years old. My dad dove even deeper into his work. So he was rarely around. I was basically my mommy's little helper. And that's where the enabling between the two of us came into play. I would enable her. She'd be taking naps throughout the day. Was she on pills? Was she drinking? Who knows? Was she just sick from the Crohn's? And by the time I get into high school, um, all of our moving around throughout my childhood had left me pretty much feeling isolated. I didn't have a ton of friends, didn't really know how to make long-term friends. And so by the time I got into my senior year and started to make some friends, but still felt like I was an outsider looking in, um, 
as soon as she announced the divorce the summer before my freshman year started and I had a job and all of a sudden, you know, I had a car and I found a way to get alcohol and I just, I got a little bit braver and started asking out some pretty girls who I was always interested in when I, when I was in high school and they started saying yes. And then started going to parties and realizing when you showed up with alcohol and you showed up, you know, ready to party, you know, all of a sudden cool dudes were wanting to hang out with you and pretty girls wanted to talk to you. And I took that as a sign that this is how I should behave in college. Go there, join a fraternity, right? It's, it's like an instant chick magnet was my 18 year old version of me's thoughts. And I got a bunch of cool dudes who want to play basketball, who want to play video games, who want to sit around and do some fun stuff. And, you know, as long as I keep the alcohol and eventually the drugs coming, then I'm going to be good to go. And I could dive way deeper into this and, and explain the psychology of what happened, but then I'm going to get us lost in the sauce. And I really want us to pay attention to uh, what happened in college and what you can be starting to be mindful of. So let's go over some things that I want you to just be mindful of when it comes to your drinking and what that could mean for you long term. Because the habits you're creating in college are going to be the ones you contend with later on in life. Yes, I agree. If some of you are like, hey, I know some people who partied super hard in college. It could be your parents, could be some adults you know somewhere else who once they got out, they were able to stop acting that way, stop drinking that way and move on with their life. And I'm not saying that that's not a possibility. In the universe of infinite possibilities, that's absolutely one. But I also see just as many people become closet drinkers or become the kind who just push it to the brink on the weekends and then drag their ass throughout the entire work week just trying to get to the next weekend. There's a song from like the 80s, everybody's working for the weekend. Yeah, what they're working for is the next time that they can pound back a ton of beers. And you see it at sporting events, you see it at, you see it at birthday parties. Hell, you're probably going to go back and now you're older. You start noticing that whenever it's like a kid's birthday party, the adults are sitting there tipping a few. Um, and again, this isn't, I'm not generalizing for the entirety of population, but you're going to notice that there are going to be those who are like, hmm, six-year-old's birthday party, did not think this is going to be where we were going to be pounding back some margaritas, but it happens. And there's a reason why that's formed in the brain and why some people don't let it go as easy as others. And we're going to get into that towards the end of the show. But for now, I want you to pay attention to is the three main reasons why people will um, drink. People will use drugs um, for the heavy drinkers, right? And for the moderate drinkers, these are going to play a role for everybody, right? If people are getting intoxicated, then it's going to come down to one of these three reasons. I'm not saying that we couldn't expand upon these reasons, but if we were looking for simplification of why people are drinking and using drugs, it's going to come down to these three. So the first one is going to be enhancement. Right, people are going to want to enhance a really good time, right? If this party is fun, how much more fun will it be on six or twelve beers, on five or six shots, on a couple joints, on some lines of blow? Like, how much more could this be if we really ramped up our intoxication? Which makes sense because if you're just going to go to a sports bar or you're going to go sit by the beach, then you're just sitting by the beach and watching this tide roll in. But if you're drinking, it makes you feel like you're doing something. Even when all you're doing is just sitting at the beach or sitting at a sports bar watching the game go on, it makes you feel like you're doing something more. 
hey, what do you want to do tonight? Why don't you just come by the place, we'll drink some beers, and we'll watch some TV. It makes it feel like you're doing something because you're actively reaching for the drink time and time again. Right, you, then we'll get into the chemical process a little bit later, but it begins to enhance Right, so now instead of just sitting there and watching television with your your housemates for four hours, y'all were drinking, you were laughing, you're having a good time, started slurring the speech a little bit, stories started getting a little funnier. It enhances, it creates this level of elation from the alcohol. Right, it can increase positive feelings, and it's doing this all through a chemical process happening in the brain. And then you're going to be looking for the second main reason people drink is for coping. Right, for coping with some level of emotions that they generally don't want to feel. Right? You know, the enhancement is going to increase the positive emotions. But whenever you go to cope, now you're looking to it's almost like unenhance the bad emotions, the negative emotions. Get a bad grade on a test, go tie one on, now all of a sudden you're not feeling so bad about the test anymore. You go to a bar, you start meeting somebody that you're you know, physically attracted to, making funny conversation. Next thing you know, your mind is completely not thinking about the bad grade you just got on the test. All right, somebody gets sick in your family, there's a death, there's something you know, traumatic. It doesn't have to always be traumatic, but it's definitely going to show up when someone gets really sick or somebody dies. It's where you see like a lot of people slip into depression and heavy drinking after someone important in their life passes away or moves on. But it could be something else as much as just like a roommate moving out or a huge argument between you and your sibling. Whatever it is that that is creating a negative emotion in you becomes something that you then want to cope with. And if we're not processing our emotions in a healthy manner, which we're not generally taught how to do. We'll spend years in school teaching you the Pythagorean theorem, which you know has its uses, but not nearly as many uses as teaching children how to process emotions in a healthy way. We grow up still not knowing how to process our emotions in a very healthy way. We maybe read some books and poke around it a little bit here and there, and eventually we become parents who will then pass on whatever way we've learned to cope with emotions or enhance emotions. We pass those things down to our children. And this is how we are a world of emotionally unintelligent people tens of thousands of years from when we left the caves. We do not know how to process emotions very well. And we're going to get into fear and why that's holding you back and why you're afraid of failure in a future podcast. But for now, we'll just focus on the fact that people will drink and use drugs to cope with emotions, the bad ones they don't want to feel. And when that starts to happen, your brain will latch on being like, oh, I feel sad, must drink. I am angry, must drink. I'm afraid of something, must do drugs. It begins to create a bridge between those two. And then you have the social conformity, the social motives, right? Where you want to show up to a party, you want to do something. And we've seen this in movies and televisions being portrayed when like, you know, the nerd shows up to the party and wants to be accepted. So they start to drink too much and then they put themselves in a position that they're not comfortable with or they're not prepared for because they have not consumed alcohol like the other people who are probably peer pressuring them to consume the alcohol. Someone who's been drinking for a few months and is used to drinking six beers is definitely going to be able to drink somebody under the table who's never tasted alcohol before or is used to one or two in a very social manner. So you go somewhere and you want to socially conform and you 
want to feel like you're included in what's going on. You don't want to be that herb, that dork, you know, that person who's like, oh, I'm not going to drink, right? You don't want people to ostracize you and start making fun of you at the party so that you just slide into the social conformity. And that tends to be where the moderate drinkers will mostly live, is the ones who are doing it for the social conformity. They'll say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a social drinker, which basically means I'm going to drink around other people who are drinking so I don't feel like the odd man out. You're afraid that you might make them uncomfortable with their drinking, so you drink in order to make them feel comfortable, which might in turn make you uncomfortable. So you'll sit in your uncomfortableness drinking when you don't necessarily want to drink around people you may not want to be intoxicated with so they don't feel uncomfortable. And then then in their uncomfortableness, they start to poke fun at you because they can't look at themselves in that moment and just say, let that person do whatever. They see you're not drinking. It's like some affront to their drinking, right? And that creates this entire hormonal interaction within their body that's almost like a fight or flight, right? It's either like attack because they're not drinking or let's just walk away from them and not be around them because they're making me feel weird about my drinking. And this is happening. And now that I've said it out loud, you are going to notice it when you go out and about. So look for ways that and heavy drinkers are very much going to be a part of that enhancement and coping. And again, it's not like social drinkers won't also use it for enhancement and for coping. It's just that most what I like to call normies, the take it or leave it kind of drinkers, will just tend to have one or two and be able to call it a night. They're the ones who might buy a schooner of beer at the bar and then not then leave and the, the, there's still beer in the glass. Whereas back in the day, I would be like, are you kidding me right now? Like, of course you got to finish that drink. I just spent $10 on it. There ain't no way I'm leaving there with any alcohol in this. And I would drink so hardcore that it would enhance things until it didn't anymore. And now all of a sudden I was on the other side of the mountain trying to cope with the negative emotions or the negative effects of alcohol. I have been to Vegas more times than I even care to admit. And there's a point where you pass the point of no return, but it's like, shit, it's only 10 o'clock. The night's still young, but I, I'm pushing, you know, a point one six. What is that? What is that? Point zero eight. Yeah. Point one six or like a point two, which is done for most people. And I'm like, I don't want to be done. I would go and make myself vomit or I would go eat food just to be able to continue to drink. Because if you started to sober up, the body would the body would not react very well. So it's like, well, I could just stop drinking for the next four hours, but then the body's, the brain's already craving the alcohol. So now it wants it more. So it does pass a point where it goes from enhancement to then the body and the mind just trying to cope with all this toxins that you've put into your body. Right, And then here's the funny thing, too, the way alcohol and drugs will work, is you will selectively remember the good times and forget the bad times, right? Because the brain, does, it just wants to remember fun, fun times. The brain wants to remember the good, doesn't want to remember the bad. Now, the unconscious mind's recording everything, so it's got it all in there. But the conscious mind's like, nope, nope, don't want to remember the fact that, you know, I fell down the stairs on leaving the bar, but I definitely want to remember the shots and the laughing and the dancing, right? And this is why, you you know, a couple weeks after a, a really bad night, you know, the brain will start to, you know, do a little mental gymnastics. And before you know it, you're back to hitting it just as hard as you did, even though, you know, three weeks ago, you fell down and hurt your ankle. It's like, okay, well, you know, that was that night, but that's not how it will always be. 
because the brain wants to remember the good times, right? I had an inability to turn it off. Once I took that first drink, it was like a sprint to the blackout, and I was the only one in the race. And if I could manage to find anyone who wanted to go toe-to-toe with me and drink, that would only make me want to drink more, to put them out, to put them under the table. And so when you go to start drinking and you start to monitor how it is you are drinking, I want you to be very mindful of whether you're using it as an enhancement or whether it's a coping mechanism or whether it's for social conformity and social motives. These are going to be very important for you to know because it'll, it'll, let you, it'll allow you the space to understand the energy you're taking into it. If it's social conformity, you really need to ask yourself, are these the kind of people that I want to be spending my time with? Is this the kind of people that I want to associate with? Are they on the same trajectory as you? Right? I mean, they might have a whole different major that doesn't require as much studying. Right? Or if they're the kind of people who are only going to base your worthiness of hanging out with them on how much alcohol you can drink and how much drugs you can do and your ability to want to buy them alcohol and drugs, are these the people that you really want to become friends with? Because I can assure you, having been one of those friends and having had those friends, when the alcohol and drugs wear off, they are turning around and looking for someone else. Okay? It's just, it's going to be the way that they roll. I want you to create a, a life in college that you can embrace and you can look back on and say, man, yes, I had fun. Right? I often say people who have the midlife crisis, who divorce the family and get the red sports car convertible and, you know, and get, get the plastic boyfriend or girlfriend, they're doing this because there's a part of them that feels like they didn't enjoy their youth as much as they now wish they had. So I absolutely say go off and have fun, do adventures, have a blast, but realize that it's not like you have to always be blacked out in order to f- walk away from these things thinking they were fun. If there's things that you want to do, then go do them. But I have traveled the world, and I have spent an inordinate amount of time sitting at a bar, getting blasted in the middle of the day, instead of down at the really cool museum or walking around the really historic castle. I lived in Singapore when I was stationed there back when I used to do marketing. I was set up in Singapore for like four months. I knew people who were normie drinkers, take it or leave it. And you know, they went to Thailand and they went to the Philippines and they went and did some really amazing stuff. And I would leave and go find some place and didn't just get housed there for the entire weekend. Wake up and feel like crap all day Saturday and Sunday, not do anything that was touristy or fun. And then as soon as the nighttime came on again, it was like, good, time to drink. Let's get, let's tie one on again. Then Monday come around and I'd feel like crap. And I'd drag myself through work until here came the weekend. And anytime there was a work event that was going to allow me to publicly drink in a way which wouldn't be judged, you can bet I was there. What, open bar? Let's do this. And there's some heavy drinking in Asia. So it wasn't too hard to find some people who wanted to throw down. So there was some social conformity going on. I was coping with being overseas and not, it was right out of college. So I was very unfamiliar, still very immature for my age, right? So I was coping with some things and I was looking to enhance the time that was good, but I thought alcohol could make it that much better. And so I drank away that entire experience. And I lived in a lot of different places in Europe, did the same visited Cuba, did the same. I mean, and hell, don't even get me started with how many times I've, I've traveled for concerts in the United States back in my drinking days and spent most of the time 
so plowed in a bar that I don't even remember the concert that I traveled there to see. And it's a super bummer that so much about life ends up getting lost to alcohol and drugs. And then, you know, then you're, you wake up one day and you're like, well, you know, I look at all that fun I had. I know people who did all those things I did and didn't think that they needed to have a 0.16 blood alcohol level in order to enjoy them. So be very, very mindful of how this is actually impeding your fun. Enhancing a, enhancing a good time or enhancing a so-so time, yeah. I'm not going to say that at your age or wherever you're at in your stage of drinking and whether you think it's healthy or unhealthy for you, I'm not going to say that it doesn't enhance things because that would be a lie. And I've realized that about six minutes ago, I was already so deep into this show that if I started trying to talk about the chemical uh, way that this reacts, this show, this episode would be 50 minutes and we're going to keep these things around 30 minutes. So I'm going to do the next episode on what happens chemically inside your brain and continue this conversation. I just want you to be mindful um, over this next week, uh, noticing, is this about enhancement? Is this about coping? Or is this about social conformity? What is the reasons that you're drinking? I'm not going to tell you that they're good or bad. That's for you to decide. I'm not going to sit here and get on my pulpit and tell you, you got to stop drinking and don't do this, that, or the other, because you're not going to listen, and that's not who I am. But I am somebody who just wants you to be aware of that whenever you start to get yourself into a, a state of real intoxication, that you're not even really experiencing your life anymore. Right? Sometimes life is boredom. Sometimes life is restlessness. And there is anxiety and there's stress. It's not always going to be super exciting. Life is like 50-50. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. And I know I've talked a lot about emotions and, and, and mindset on this podcast and been like, every day can be the best day of your life. And I certainly say that on the, on the sober show. Every day, can be the, every day is the best day of my life because I wake up sober. But it doesn't mean that the day is great. Right? The other day I had to spend like three hours on the phone trying to figure out my health insurance. That's not an exciting way for me to spend my time. I was not thrilled to be on the phone for three hours with Kaiser Permanente. By no stretch of the imagination was that even remotely what I wanted to do with my time. And then I come out of a, a store over the holiday weekend and somebody's rear into my car and caused $1,500 of damage to my trunk. Now I got to pay for that out of my own pocket because they didn't leave their insurance information. That wasn't a good day. Found out that my tires weren't rotated correctly in Los Angeles, and now I'm looking at them to get new tires. There's a thousand bucks gone. That's not a good thing to find out. I'm not trying to make normal life things better than they actually are. It's not sobriety that sucks. It's just life sometimes that just hands you a bad day, a bad hour. It's up to you to decide whether a bad test or a bad hour or or a bad conversation with your roommate is going to ruin the rest of your day, whether that's going to be what elicits this, fuck it, let's just get tore up kind of mentality, or if it's the, hey, you know what, how can I solve this issue now and then get myself back to a more even state? And then if I want to go out and have a drink or two, at least I'm doing it in an enhancement mindset, not a coping mindset. And again, I am not pushing for anybody to drink. That is not what this show's about. But I'm also not silly enough or stupid enough, if you have it, be to sit here and say, don't drink. Underage drinking is a thing that happens in college. It is a, it is a fact. In fact, in fact, 
when society tries to say, don't talk about this stuff because a bunch of the people who listen to it are minors, that's actually exactly what fuels some of this behavior. It's like parents not wanting to talk to their children about sex. Oh, my child's too young. We shouldn't be talking to them about that stuff. Hey, this isn't 1994 where the only way you can find out about stuff is go to the library and check out a book, read it out of a magazine, or talk to a friend. If you're not willing to step up and talk to people in your life about some of these things that are could be considered taboo subjects, the internet will be more than happy to step in and fill the void. We live in a whole different reality now. If you're not willing to have these conversations with your kids or with your friends that you see are pushing the envelope a little too hard, drinking a little too much, doing some silly, dangerous things. If you're not willing to have these conversations, don't worry. They'll find someone who accepts the behavior or they'll find somewhere on the internet where they're told that their behavior is okay. Or they'll just flat out get misinformation. I can only ask that for once in a while, that when you go to enhance or you go to cope or you go to socially conform, you just stop yourself for a moment and say, is this really how I want to behave? How about I try going bowling without getting drunk, just to see what it's like? What if I go to the movies without being stoned? What if I go and do this one thing without being intoxicated? Hey, I don't feel very good today. I'm I'm sad. I got a bad grade or my parents came down on me. Maybe for just try it not drinking. Try it a different way. I'll be all woo-woo for a moment, but say try journaling or or try having a meaningful conversation with someone that you trust and share with them your feelings. When you want to socially conform, maybe it's just joining in the conversation in a way where you're able to listen to them, they're able to listen to you, and everyone just gets along because no idea is being negated and everything's just sort of being accepted for what it is, another person's opinion or belief, and just try it not drinking. Carry around the cup, but have water in it instead. Or pour a bunch of cranberry juice over ice and tell people it's one thing when it's not, if that's what makes you feel more comfortable. I would just encourage you to to create a life that you don't feel like you need to escape from. I certainly was all about the enhancement, and then then too much enhancement made me need to cope. And I would get to the point where I would socially conform in as much as I wouldn't drink like a crazy person in front of other people, but I would secretly, you know, be tipping back a flask in the bathroom or doing some drugs outside of other people's sight, but I was absolutely getting more and more intoxicated. And it became like a game where I would could see how intoxicated can I be without anybody realizing this is how intoxicated I actually am. Drinking in college is where you're going to begin to create these habits in your life around what it is you need to consume in order to feel like you're having a good time, in order to feel better when you're feeling when you're having negative emotions, or, or what you need to feel when you want to fe- when you want to socially conform, when you want to be included in the tribe. You are laying down these habits that you are going to need to contend with at some point in your life. It's going to happen. And it's happening around other things too, sex and porn and food and your phone. I mean, the way, and we'll go into it in the next episode, that your brain gets addicted to these things is through a process of, you know, of endorphin and dopamine and serotonin releasing and all this other amygdala stuff. 
And I'll get into it as much as I can in the next episode. Again, not having a degree in anything science-y, but I've done my research. But for this one, let's talk about the psychology of it. Why are you drinking? Why are you using drugs? Why are you uh, eating, overeating? Or why are you gambling or watching porn? What is it you're trying to satisfy? What is it about your life you're trying to enhance? Where are you trying to cope? And where is there some sort of social motive going on? When you can pinpoint these three areas and be mindful of them and be more aware of them, you can begin to make decisions for yourself that will lead you to a, a, I would say, more desirable outcome. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I can assure you at some point, whether it's you or someone you love, you're going to look over at them or you're going to look at yourself in the mirror and say, you are partying too much. This is getting out of control. We need to figure this out. And by that point, Beginning stages, if not full-on addiction, is already set in. And it can become even more difficult to monitor these things. So depending on where you're at in your journey through high school and college and graduation and all that other stuff, just be mindful of this stuff. Enhancement, coping, and social motives. And just see where you fall in line there. And then ask yourself, is there a better way I would prefer to behave? And we'll get into how all that's going to play out in future episodes, but I think I've laid out how to set goals, how to follow through, and know this, that your your college offers counseling, your college offers help. Go talk to someone. Right? They're not going to kick you out of school because you tell them that you're drinking too much. Right? They might kick you out of school if you get a DUI. All right, my friends, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy, release and flow. Take care. Be mindful. Bye-bye.